Good evening. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse, and you are listening to Wellness Lehigh Valley. I am your host, Sally Hanlon. Wellness is important to a balanced lifestyle, and more and more, we as humanity are figuring out how certain elements can lead to positive results. From mental health to the environment, including all things that can affect your wellness, I am happy to invite you into the conversation on ways to improve or think differently about wellness in the Lehigh Valley. And on this show in the past, we have covered things like people, plants, animals, environment, topics that are important to having a healthy community. We've had air quality, herbal medicine, mental health, food deserts, nature, outdoor spaces. I love the concept of tree baths and water. And tonight, we'll be focused on the Lehigh Valley's ecosystem services that are provided to us by our bird wildlife. We all know the environment is changing. As humans, we experience it daily. But how is the changing environment affecting our birds? So my guests tonight are from the Lehigh Valley chapter of the Audubon Society. I would like to welcome Barbara Malt, who is Chapter Vice President and Head of the Education Committee. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Sally. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad we're doing this tonight. (laughs) And with her is Brandon Swayzer. He is the Christmas Bird Count Coordinator, Education Committee Member, Environmental Educator, and Biologist. Wow, you're busy, aren't you, Brandon? Just a little bit. Thank you, Sally. (laughs) Well, we have a a really interesting show to share with you, and especially at this time of the year, to make you aware as we head into the cooler months of our environment. I would like to ask Barbara and Brandon, please, to give us a little bit of their background and how they got involved with the Audubon Society locally. So let's start with Barbara Malt first. Barbara, share with our listeners what got you engaged in this effort. Well, um, Sally, I always watched birds in our backyard with my mother growing up in Massachusetts. She had feeders. Then I went to graduate school in California, and I discovered that there were more birds out there. But I didn't really learn very much because I was on my own. And so when I moved to the Lehigh Valley and found Lehigh Valley Audubon Society, that's when I really started learning from other people and appreciating how many birds are out there. There are a lot. And how long have you been participating with the local chapter? probably been at least 30 years. Really? Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for that volunteer effort and for bringing your knowledge to us today on this uh, show. Brandon, a little bit about your background. It's very varied. Yeah, sure. So I grew up here in the Lehigh Valley, and when I was a kid, I knew I wanted to do something in my life with nature, animals, wildlife. I uh, didn't really know exactly what, so I went to college, went to undergrad school down at Delaware Valley University, for zoology. I figured that was a good place to start. And when I was there, um, with the requirements that I had to, you know, complete to complete my program there, I ended up working at Wildlands Conservancy, which is an environmental group here in the Lehigh Valley, and also taking a bunch of wildlife-related courses in college. And I happened to be kind of just starting out as an intern at the Conservancy at the same time that I was taking an ornithology course at my undergrad school. And it really got me hooked. I was amazed all of a sudden at all of the species of birds and other animals that I didn't really know existed. You know, I was into this world, but didn't really know all the diversity that we had around here, and it kind of got me hooked into this world. Ended up going to graduate school at East Stroudsburg University for uh, biology, focused on ornithology, on the science of studying birds. And when I was in grad school and also still working at the Conservancy, I had some friends that were involved with Lehigh Valley Audubon, with LVAS, And they asked me to attend some meetings, thought it would be cool if I joined the group, 
thought that I would enjoy it, and I did enjoy it. Got to be around like-minded people, got to work on some great, impactful conservation projects, and that was about seven years ago or so when I started to volunteer with Lehigh Valley Audubon. Great. That's wonderful. You know, it's interesting. When I was doing some of the research, things that I never thought about, I mean, I watch the birds in my backyard, and I've I've been involved in some programs in a meadow that have focused on birds, but I never really thought about the characteristics that make them quite special to our environment. And, you know, most birds can fly, so they can move differently than most of the other animals in other vertebrates in our environment. So they're very special to us and we've got to make sure we take good care of them. So we're going to be talking about some of that a little bit with what we call, and Barbara brought this to my attention, oh no, it was Brandon, intrinsic versus instrumental values of the birds. So keep tuned, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But first of all, let's talk a bit about the chapter. What kinds of programs, services, why should one become a member? How do they become a member? Barbara, I'm going to turn that to you. Well, we have a lot of activities to help people understand birds and nature. We have monthly programs, which in the past have been in person, but currently are on Zoom. And they are often on birds, but we also have had talks on butterflies and insects and all sorts of nature-related topics. We have many field trips, especially during the fall and spring, and to a lesser extent in the summer and winter. So taking people out both locally and farther afield like the Jersey Shore to see the varied um, habitats and types of birds here. And we offer educational outreach. We go into schools and we give talks to community groups, um, churches and garden clubs and so on. Of course, we coordinate the Christmas bird count. Brandon is our coordinator for that. And we have programs of our own for children, um, such as a couple of upcoming programs that we'll talk about later. Okay. Well, and I have to vouch for the expertise that your volunteers provide because I work with a company that has invited them to come and work with field trips that come to a meadow. And if anyone is aware during the day it's a little hard to find the birds because they're either up high and you can't really distinguish them even with binoculars but the folks that we've had come visit they just hear a sound they just hear the the noise and they're able to tell us what is up in the air which is fascinating to me so it's a great resource for educational programs like that we're going to talk a little bit about the christmas bird count brandon what is that why is that important yeah, so it's got a really fascinating history that will kind of lead us into, you know, what we do with it today. But the Christmas bird count was started in the year 1900 at the beginning of that century by a man named Frank Chapman, who was one of the kind of early ornithologists, founding ornithologists, wrote a lot of ornithology textbooks and is pretty well known. And before that, there was a tradition called the Christmas side hunt, which would basically be get together with your family and friends and go hunting for whatever you can find on Christmas Day. And Frank Chapman said, why don't we actually do some science and just count birds instead of shooting birds and start this new tradition? So they started a new tradition in the year 1900 where basically you draw a circle, a 15-mile diameter circle. can be pretty much anywhere. People usually do it near where they live or, you know, where they work in their communities. And you try to count all the birds in that circle on roughly the same day every year around Christmas for 24 hours. And basically you are trying to document all the birds in that area at the same time on the same day every year. And it's been going on since 1900. So we're in the 123rd year of the Christmas bird count now. That makes, and it's an Audubon Christmas bird count, it's run by National Audubon Society, which makes it the oldest wildlife census and one of the oldest citizen science projects in the world. 
think about how much data we can get and how much things have changed in this country. Um, and it's now spreading all over the world, the Christmas bird count, but how much things have changed with bird populations. It gives us great insights into, you know, bird population trends and changing geographic distributions and whether populations are going up and down and really informs a lot of science. And we at LVAS, at Lehigh Valley Audubon, we oversee one count circle. There's thousands of these count circles throughout the country and into other countries now. And ours is called the Lehigh Valley Christmas Bird Count or the Allentown Christmas Bird Count. The center of our circle is in West Allentown, and it kind of goes into, you know, Emmaus, Albertus, McCungie, surrounding areas, and ours will be occurring this year. We're not 123rd, we're somewhere around our 80th year, I believe, um, and ours will be occurring this year on December 17th on a Saturday, um, which is only two days after this uh, after show this is airs. going to be airing, so yeah. you might not be able to get involved in ours this year. But I do encourage people to, you can just simply Google Christmas Bird Count and find Audubon Society's Christmas Bird Count webpage. And on that page is a tool you can use where you can basically zoom in on a map to your house and see if you're inside a count circle, if you're close to a count circle. And it will give you the contact information for the folks who oversee that count. And anybody can pretty much be involved. Um, you can be involved either by joining a count team and driving and walking around the circle with other volunteers. You need to have a little bit of basic bird identification knowledge to do that. Or just about anyone, even if you're just starting out with identifying birds, can be a feeder watcher, can count birds in your own backyard and report it to the people who oversee that count circle. So it's a really important, what we call, citizen science project. And what happens to the data who, um, when they bring it all together? Does it create uh, policies for changes, um, new ways of doing things? What, what happens yeah, absolutely. To it? So citizen science data in general, and if anyone's unfamiliar with that term, citizen science is basically employing non-professional scientists, which is, you know, the general public to help professional scientists with answering scientific questions by collecting data. You know, there's only so many ornithologists. There's not many of us that are actually, you know, professional scientists in, in bird or even studying any other wildlife in those fields. But if we can at least slightly train amateurs to help us collect data, we can get a lot more data that way. So the Christmas bird count is an example, and there's many other examples of citizen science projects. And that data gets compiled and often used by researchers to answer questions. So I can say, for example, when I was in graduate school um, studying a specific species of bird called the hooded warbler, and I was looking for locations where they occur and trends, um, whether their populations were going up and down in certain areas, I looked at citizen science data. I looked at eBird data. Scientists answering conservation questions all over the world can look at Christmas bird count data, can look at eBird data, or in other disciplines, other citizen science data, and help them to answer those questions and hopefully conserve wildlife. Now, you, you mentioned eBird, and there are other bird counts going on throughout the year, correct, Barbara? Yes, there are a number of types of population censuses. There's um, a spring migration count to look at, obviously, what birds are migrating through. There is a breeding bird census periodically to see what birds are breeding in a given area. There's a midwinter count called the Great Backyard Bird Count that occurs in the middle of February. Okay. And it's that one I think I told Barbara. I uh, went on the Great Backyard Bird Count um, last year up at Jacobsburg, and we got in the middle of a snow squall. So it was <laughs> really interesting to try and see the birds with the snow coming. Yes, we had a similar experience at our count locally here. Yeah, that's was, right. It was very cold and windy that <laughs> yeah. day. Yes. It was, yes. It was a little yes. crazy. Okay. So... We do the bird counts, and we have this information, um, 
But obviously, from what I'm reading from the Audubon Society webpage, you know, we have a lot of birds that are on sort of the edge of whether or not they'll be around with us anymore. And some of them are could be local birds. Some of them are migratory birds. Birds have been often, I, I think of the coal regions, you know, in the, in the Canaries and going in and, you know, letting people know whether or not they should go in or not. They are the harbinger of em- environmental events, changing seasons, air quality, plant pollination, etc. How does this affect our bird population? I mean, they help us with some of the things they do, which are the instrumental things, I believe, mm-hmm. correct? But the intrinsic is what we're doing to them and the rest of the natural world. Is that correct? Yes. So there's basically two schools of thought for how we can value wildlife. We can value them with what we call instrumental values, which is wildlife as an instrument for human causes. What can humans, or what can wildlife rather, help us do, help us accomplish? Or intrinsic values. And to value something intrinsically means that it has inherent value. It has value in and of itself. Um, Just because it's alive and is life, it deserves to be protected. You know, life is a fairly rare thing in the universe. We don't know of anywhere else where there's life. So we have living things here, and we should, you know, try to protect them just because we should without necessarily any... uh, tie to what they can do for people. But there are some very important instrumental value things to talk about, like ecosystem services that definitely help us to justify and help us to have discussions about why birds are important, because they are important to us, even though they're important just because they are as well. Yeah, and and, um, they bring an awful lot of joy, especially backyards. I mean, I know a lot of people who are backyard watchers. They may not know exactly what they see, but they enjoy seeing that life back Mm -hmm. there. And listeners, we're going to take a short break right now. You are listening to Wellness Lehigh Valley with our guest, Barbara Malt, who is vice president of the Lehigh Valley chapter of the Audubon Society, and Brandon Swayzer, who is education committee member and Christmas count coordinator. We're talking about the important role of birds in our environment. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100 or WDIY.org. Welcome back to our Wellness Lehigh Valley Discourse Program. We are talking about the importance of birds in our ecosystem and the human impact on them as well with our guests, Barbara Malt, who is Vice President of the Lehigh Valley Chapter of the Audubon Society, and Brandon Swayzer, who is a part of the Education Committee of the local chapter as well. And before we went to break, we were talking about bird counts and the importance of the citizens and helping scientists and understanding birds. How are these harbingers? How are we affecting them? You know, we talked about intrinsic versus instrumental values. Can you help us out, Brandon, understand sure, what's going Sure, sure. So our human activities and, you know, the things that we do in our society are certainly having a negative impact on birds, and we can do things that have a positive impact as well, and we'll talk about that. Um, but there was a study done a few years back by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology that showed that in the past 50 years, up to a third of our birds have been lost, mostly due to human activities, due to things like development, habitat loss, climate change. The biggest one in our area here in the Lehigh Valley is habitat loss and habitat destruction and fragmentation. Um, As we all know, we've seen an incredible amount of development in our area. It's a very quickly developing part of the country, and that has consequences on 
birds and other animals that live in the habitats that, that we destroy. Um, so that's a major thing with warehouses and shopping centers and roads and communities and such taking the place of, you know, habitats of forests and meadows where animals used to live. So we can talk about some of the things we can do to help with that. Some other things to talk about are climate change, of course. It's a global problem that we're all aware of. I think Barbara's going to talk a little bit about how that is affecting birds. And those are two of the very large topics. There's, of course, all sorts of other little things that we can talk about. Birds hitting windows, um, cats getting birds and such. And we can, we can get into that. Yeah, I didn't realize myself um, until I went to Jacobsburg, uh, their window treatments on the windows that they have there, which the birds can see, but when you're inside the building, you look out and you don't really see whatever's on that glass. Mm -hmm. Consequently, when I went home, I went <laughs> and did some things so that the birds could tell my windows, because I've often heard a thump. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, but we'll get into more of that. Before we do that, I'd like to get into this issue with migratory patterns because, you know, as you said, Brandon, we've had a lot of development. And I know in the area that I live in, uh, you know, marsh areas have become houses and mm -hmm. other things. So, what's happening? Who's migrating? Are they still migrating? Where are they migrating? Barbara, can you help us out and understand what's going on with that? Yeah, Pennsylvania is on what's called the Eastern Flyway, which just really means that a lot of birds migrate up along the East Coast and somewhat inland in, into Pennsylvania. Many of them are heading up to breed in uh, New England and some into southern or even northern Canada, the northern boreal forests and the Arctic tundra. So um, these migratory birds include a lot of songbirds, including warbler species, scarlet tanagers, Baltimore orioles, also a lot of shorebirds, a lot of waterfowl, a lot of hawks, owls. So birds of many types are migrating through Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania and everywhere really on their migratory path are important stopover areas where they stop and feed and fatten up to continue on their journey. So the quality of the habitat that we offer here is really important for helping them be successful in their migratory journey. And of course, we think of them migrating north in the spring, but they're also migrating south in the fall. So twice a year, they do this very energy intensive activity. What makes a good migratory landing place for birds? What, what, what do that you said, food, water, place to rest, obviously mm -hmm. where they don't get hunted or trapped. What else would make a good place for, you know, if we see an area that we want to make sure that we preserve, what does it have to have in it? Of course, the needs for different types of birds differ, but as you said, mainly undisturbed and okay. intact ecologically. So one problem with a lot of our eastern forests is that they're being overrun with invasive species from other countries. And those species often don't support our native wildlife, in, uh, so they don't provide the right kinds of food sources okay. in particular. Sometimes not the right kind of shelter, but the food is really the most critical thing. So we really need to have ecologically intact areas with our native species in them, native plant species. Okay. Leave them alone so that... Yeah, leave them alone and restore. There's already a lot of problems, so we need a lot of restoration efforts. Now, some of the obstacles, Brandon, you know, you mentioned, you know, um, you know, windows and other things, but I've been reading about artificial lighting, night lighting being a problem with migratory birds. Is that, can you explain that? 
Yes, and it's kind of a two-part issue, and we can we can go into that. But basically, birds, you might think, how does a little bird fly from, say, Pennsylvania to Costa Rica and get there relatively on time and, and relatively accurately every year? Well, they use a whole bunch of cues, and one of the cues they use is celestial objects. Is for songbirds, usually the stars and the moon, they're migrating at night. Some birds, like raptors, use the direction of the sun, they migrate during the day. And specifically at night with songbirds, when birds see, you know, stars, they navigate based on the stars and the moon, they can get confused when they also see lights of especially tall buildings and cities. And they can fly towards those thinking that they're stars. And they'll often get grounded in cities or city parks, which can be dangerous when it becomes daytime the next day and they take off and they are surrounded by glass. When we can get into the whole bird glass collisions concept, so... We're actually lucky that here in Allentown, well, we're in Bethlehem currently, but in Allentown, Pennsylvania, locally, we have the world's leading experts on bird glass collisions at Muhlenberg College. There's a few folks there who do research on this topic. And it's surprising. It may be up to a billion birds per year that are killed by running into glass because they simply don't see it. They see reflection of habitat or sky in the glass. They think they can fly into that, um, and they run into the glass, and they, you know, they get injured. And most of them don't do very well. Even if they appear to recover and take off, they often, you know, perish from Damaged. complications later on. So it's kind of a two-part issue with the lights and, and the glass. But luckily, we can all very easily treat our windows. If we notice windows at home or at work that are being, you know, run into, we hear that thump that Sally mentioned. Um, you can treat them. You can find easy things online. There's just two quick things I'll mention. Acopian bird savers, A-C-O-P-I-N bird savers as well as feather-friendly tape are two really inexpensive things that you can apply to the outside of your windows. They come with instructions, they're simple, they're cheap, and they prevent 90 plus percent of bird collisions from happening. So there's ways that we can prevent that problem. So what else, and I'm gonna start with Brandon, then I'm gonna ask Barbara to chime in. What else can residents do, whether you're um, a homeowner or whether you live in an apartment, what can we do to help support keeping alive our bird population and letting them flourish in the Lehigh Valley. So Brandon, do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. I'll leave native plants for you, Barbara. But we talked about windows. That's a big thing. We can try to minimize the amount of chemicals that we use on our properties, you know, herbicides, uh, lawn care products, pesticides, try to use more natural ways to, you know, help us with those problems and try to minimize chemical usage that can build up through the food chain. We can just keep our yards a little more natural. You know, we talked about how quickly we're losing habitat in our area. Well, a lot of us have, even if it's tiny, a little bit of area that could possibly be habitat, you know, in our yards and our community parks and such. So either ourselves or, or sort of pressuring the powers that be in our communities to maybe turn an area of mowed grass into a wildflower meadow. Um, maybe don't sweep up every leaf. Leave the leaves. You can leave the leaves because birds use leaves for food. You know, invertebrates and amphibians and such live in those leaves over the winter time. So leave things a little messy if we can. Um, plant native plants. Those are big things that we can do to to help okay. wildlife. And Barbara, native plants. That seems to be an area that you seem to know well. Yes, so most people don't realize that most of the ornamental plants that were sold at ordinary nurseries and big box stores come from other countries, most commonly probably Asia. And so when we fill our yards with those ornamentals, they do not support the butterflies and moths and pollinators like our native bees. 
and um, all the little caterpillars and so on that form food for birds and that actually are essential for them to raise their young. So most of our songbirds require insects to raise their young. People think you put out bird seed and you're feeding the birds, but that only serves a small portion of birds and it doesn't help them raise their young. So what we really need to do is get rid of or at least incorporate along with those plants from other countries. We need to use some of our native ornamentals and they make a much healthier yard, which will actually attract more birds and, and let you have a lot more fun too. I remember, and, and I, I got this changed a while ago, but there was some talk at that point that you should only feed the wildlife in the wintertime and, you know, don't use the bird feeders in the summertime. And is, is that, should you be feeding birds year round? You can feed birds, you know, at any time of year as much or as little as you want. Feeding birds is mostly for our enjoyment, to bring the birds a little bit closer to us. It can certainly help to supplement their food supplies and help them get through, say, really tough winter days where it's very cold. But mostly, you know, it's not a huge part of any bird's diet. As Barbara mentioned, not all birds that we have around here eat bird seed and come to feeders. And the ones that do, usually that's only a portion of what they're eating. They're usually finding a lot of natural food as well. In the summer, not as many birds will come to your bird feeders because in the summer, a lot of birds switch from a more seed and grain diet to a more insect and other invertebrate diet because they need that protein to raise their young. Um, but you still will get some birds year-round, and there's no sort of negative to feeding them year-round. Um, there's a common misconception that if you don't feed bird or if you keep feeding birds as they're migrating, they'll not migrate because, you know, they're getting plenty of food. But while migration is based on food supply, they don't get their cues to migrate or not migrate based on the presence or absence of food. They get that from day length and temperature changes and things like that. So they'll migrate regardless. And when you said, Barbara, about you know having the food source to, to raise their young, there was also some concern about cleaning out birdhouses periodically. Is that something that we should be doing on a regular basis? And if so, what timing should it be done? Um, yes, if you have nest boxes out for your chickadees or wrens or so on, you do want to clean them before spring. Before spring, okay. Before the birds are getting ready to nest. Um, but I think the larger issue is really about cleaning feeders. Okay. So birds congregate at feeders and can transmit disease from one to another. And of course, the feeders can become contaminated. And also there's just bacterial issues or mold issues when old bird seed builds up. Um, so you really, if you're going to be feeding birds, you really want to keep those feeders clean. And they don't make the feeders easy to take apart and clean. I'll tell you, I, I have a couple in my yard and I, I feel like a I need about five hands mm -hmm. in order to get all the screws out and put it back together again. And before you buy them, try to buy ones that look like they'll be very simple to, to take down and, you know, just scrub with soapy water in the sink and put back together. There are some that are easier to take apart and clean than others. That's good. I'll have to look yeah. now for those. Um, in the beginning, we talked about events, and we're getting close to the end of our show, so let's make sure our listeners know what else is happening with uh, the local chapter. So besides the Christmas bird count, which, as Brandon mentioned, um, may be a little too late to join this year, but it runs every year, so you can join up for another year. We have a kids' version that we run a little bit later, so we have what, what we call Christmas bird count for kids, and that will be this year on Saturday, December 17th, or sorry, uh, Saturday, January 7th, and you can um, register your child through our website. Um, we still have openings at this time, 
And then in mid-February, we have an event for the Great Backyard Bird Count. We use a room at Pool Wildlife Sanctuary, and we have lots of, we count birds together, and we have activities for kids, and we help everybody learn what birds are out there. Um, and so this year, that will be on Saturday, February 18th. And what is the address of the website, Barbara? I think just Google Lehigh Valley Audubon Society, and you'll come up with it. Okay. It's lvaudubon.org. I looked at it before, right before we started here, so I <laughs> remember you. it. But oh. lvaudubon.org, and at that address, you can join to become a member of our society. It only costs $20 a year. covers your whole family, and you will get emails about all the various events that we have year-round. And you can also, you know, see the events that Barbara just talked about. And it's a it's a great investment. Um, you know, for twenty dollars, that certainly is very reasonable for the amount of work and all the volunteer support that this chapter offers to those of us in the Lehigh Valley that need the education and are looking for their expertise. Well, it's now time to close this show, and I am so glad that the two of you had the time to be able to join with us tonight on Wellness Lehigh Valley. Barbara, thank you so much for coming and suggesting that Brandon be a part of the show as well. Thank you for having us. And Brandon, I am awed about your expertise. I'm going to keep you in mind the next time I need some help. So Brandon Swayzer, thank you very much. Sure thing. Would be happy to help out again. Okay. Listeners, I'd like to thank you for making time for this conversation, and you can find past episodes and other public affairs programming at WDIY.org and on major podcast platforms. I'm Sally Hanlon, and this is WDIY 88.1 FM. Tune in next Thursday for more Lehigh Valley Discourse, and we'll see you next time on Wellness Lehigh Valley. <music>